Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Michael Shabon writes novels. He does a lot of other stuff as well. Short stories, television, film. He teaches... Uh, he's a great dad, as far as I can tell. He's a loving husband. He's a music nerd. He knows everything about great music and uh, proselytizes without being encouraged to do so. And he's a blast. He could be stuck up. He could be cooler than thou. He's won a freaking Pulitzer and a Hugo and a Nebula, but he's not a stuck up dude. He's down to earth and funny and kind and humble. I sat down with him in his office behind his home in Berkeley, where he spends five hours a night between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. writing almost every night. His office is a funny little place. Of course, it's lined in books. Our conversation started off on the new television series Picard, on which he's currently working. It's just getting released as this episode drops. But it ranges far and wide. I think that what we talk about won't just be of use to writers. I think that pretty much anybody will find this interesting. Because while Michael is primarily a writer... He thinks a lot about living and what makes us better moment to moment, just as people, as uh, friends and husbands and fathers. And I really appreciate him as a person in our world. I think he makes it better. And I was so lucky to get to sit down with him. I hope you enjoy this episode of Wheels Off with Michael Shabon. Hello, Michael. Welcome to Wheels Off. Hey, Rhett. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining me. Um, we are currently in your office behind your house in Berkeley, California. Yes, we are. And I will start where I start all of these. Um, what creative project are you working on right now, and in what way is it inspiring you? 
Uh, I'm working on a few things simultaneously. I'm working on um, a novel, as I usually am, and I've been at work on this one for a while now, um, and it's progressing pretty well. Um, I've been working on it for, I guess, about six months. Um, it still feels early days on that one, but it's. Uh, I think it's going to... Uh, I think I've gotten past the point where I'm no longer sure if it's going to come together or not, so that's good. Um and then I've been doing a lot of work um, in this in the Star Trek universe. So I've been working on this um, Picard show, where uh, untitled Picard project, where uh, Patrick Stewart is coming back to reprise his role as as uh, as Jean Luc Picard um, in a series uh, that's going to be set twenty years after the last time we saw Jean Luc Picard, which was in the uh, Star Trek movie Nemesis. Um, so a lot has happened. To him in the intervening 20 years, including that he's 20 years older, and we're show's gonna very much deal with that, among all the other things having to do with you know intergalactic politics and so on that you would expect. So, are you in a writer's room for that? Yeah, there is a writer's room, uh, it meets every day and it has been making its way through um, breaking the the uh, both the over all arcs of the season and the individual episodes and what happens in them. And I've been going down from Berkeley to LA to persist to participate in that room um, from time to time. Uh, I can't be there every day, um, week after week, um, nor, to be honest, would I necessarily really want to because it's it's something I find fun to do in small doses. But, you know, I became a writer basically like because I like to be by myself (laughs) in the room with the door shut. And so, you know, it's fun to collaborate and it's fun to be with other people sometimes, but I think... Uh, if I had to do it every day, I think it would wear on me after a while, even if they were the smartest, coolest people in the world, which is actually the case with the people who are in this Picard room. But uh, so I, I check in from time to time. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I get a report every day of what happened in the room and I read the report religiously and I try to stay up on what's going on and, and I will weigh in that way. And then I will go down and, and um, participate in the room uh, every few weeks. Have you done a writer's room before? I have not for a TV series. I've done two before for movie franchises where, where there was an attempt being made to, to create a, a universe, uh, around various, um, pieces of intellectual property. So I did a room for around Hasbro toys about four years ago. And then a couple of years ago, I did a room around these books that were popular with kids when my kids were young in the 2000s, um, the ologies books like dragonology and wizardology and, um, and, uh, there were two different rooms that were created to try to um, come up with universes around those properties and then figure out feature films that would be based on them, a series of feature films. And that I really enjoyed that. And in fact, doing that work led to this Star Trek work because the producer who put together those two rooms, Akiva Goldsman, is one of the producers on Star Trek Discovery, the current iteration of the show that's on All Access. And then he's also, he brought me in um, to write a short for that, so I, I worked. I wrote a short film called Calypso, a Star Trek film that aired a few months back, and then that led to me being asked to be part of this Picard room. God, it sounds like a lot of fun, though. It is really. Oh, I love it. I mean, and just you know, being able to write dialogue for Jean Luc Picard and to to, to <laughs> tell stories that are set in this this universe that has been really meaningful to me since I was ten years old, and pretty much continuously over the period since then. Um, you know, uh, uh, there have been some some 
quiet periods in Star Trek fandom over the years um, when there were no shows on the air and no films being made. But basically, it's been going since I was, well, since I was born almost, really. And uh, uh, and to be part of that and that ongoing like half-century enterprise, so to speak. It's is, funny, uh, your relationship with um, those kind of characters that live for long periods of time. Like, I know from having read a little bit of your James Bond stuff that mm-hmm. you wrote when you were a kid. Yeah. Um, how old, but was that the first thing you really wrote was kind of James Bond? Sherlock Holmes. Oh, I'm sorry, Sherlock yeah, Holmes. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. But I'm actually yeah. a James Bond fan too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It was the Sherlock Holmes stuff. That's right. Yeah, oh that's my God, right. that's so sweet. So that was the first thing you wrote. The first story that I ever wrote where I really sat down and tried to write a short story uh, for an English class uh, was when I was in seventh grade and it was... Um, or sixth grade, and it was, a, I wrote a Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah. You recently posted some of that, and it reads not like a sixth grader. <laughs> it's really well, sweet. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But, it, you know, it's funny because right now I'm actually reading a book, um, uh, an advanced copy that I was asked to read and maybe give a blurb to that's a novel by this guy, Nicholas Mayer, who. Um, uh, wrote a novel called The 7% Solution. Yeah. That was a Sherlock Holmes novel. And I read it when I was, it came out in 73, so I was like 10 years old. And, you know, that was a, uh, reading that and at a point when I was already really in love with Sherlock Holmes and all those stories. And suddenly I remember I had this thought like, wait, you can do that? Like you could just write your own Sherlock Holmes? And I mean, now we would recognize it immediately as fan fiction, but that didn't, that, there was fan fiction, but the concept didn't really exist at that time. And, you know, that was liberating for me. And to realize so that when I did write my first search, story, very soon after reading The 7% Solution, I wrote, I did the same thing. I wrote my own Sherlock Holmes story. And I'm actually, he has a new one. He's written several since in the decades since then. And he has a new one coming out called um, uh, The Case of the Peculiar Protocols. And I'm reading and I'm really enjoying it. Um, so, you know, I've come full circle in many ways. And in fact, Nicholas Mayer has been over the years has been heavily involved with the whole Star Trek world too. He wrote the Wrath of Khan and he directed, um, maybe one of the subsequent movies. I'm not sure now, maybe it was number four, uh, Star Trek four. So he, you know, he's the Sherlock Holmes and Star Trek strands that are woven together in my reading and writing life are, have been woven together in other people's lives over the years too. So maybe that speaks to emulation as a way of honing one's craft. Clearly, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there is any... There is no way to learn how to do any art form except by imitating. Yeah. I mean, to, that's obvious to me. And we, and we accept it in so many other art forms. I mean, like when you read about the greatest rock guitar players who have ever lived and you read about how they learn how to play guitar you know the first wave that we think of like the Jimmy Pages and and the Jeff Becks all sat down and listened to their Everly Brothers records and their um and their um uh Muddy Ricky Nelson records I don't know if you had and the yeah. blues guitarist but you know they then they would just play note for note to the records until they could play what they were hearing on the records and that's how you learn how to do that. That's how you learn how to do almost everything. But weirdly, when it comes to writing, we have this strange idea that you have to be original and that it's your voice and you have to find your voice in it. And it comes out of you in some magical kind of bullshit way that actually it's not really true. Yes, eventually you get to that point, um, but you don't start at that point. You start by imitating the voices of the writers that 
have strong voices that you respond to, whether it's Kurt Vonnegut or, or you know, uh, Charles Bukowski. I'm just trying to name ones where I know people that th- th- these are the kind of writers who tend to be triggering writers for a lot of young men anyway, when they want to start writing, or at least did when I was a kid. Um, you know, for me, it was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Ray Bradbury was yeah. a huge influence on me. And just, and when I say influence, what I, what I'm saying is I, I literally wrote stories in which I tried as hard as I could to copy what I perceived to be the style of Ray Bradbury, the kind of stories that Ray Bradbury wrote, um, both in the tone and the word choice and the kinds of subject matter he was using. And that's how you learn how to do it. And you, you copy and then you copy and you find someone else to copy. If you keep reading, your tastes change as you get older. You have new models. And then at some point, you're ready and you kind of cut loose. And, 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 and in a way, your imitations are always going to fail. They're, you're never going to be able to exactly duplicate. And it's in that difference between what you do and what you're trying to do what you're trying to emulate and what you're actually capable of. And that difference is actually, that's where your voice lies. You know, that the way that you fall short of imitating the people whose work you most admire is ultimately your clue to how to write like yourself. So if you take the, the, where the Venn diagram, where you do overlap with them, you take the section that's not overlapping and you magnify that mm-hmm. and you just follow that mm-hmm. rabbit, go down mm-hmm. that rabbit hole. What is it that I don't, that's keeping me from being able to do this. Like in some cases it's the period that you're writing in. Like you just can't write like a Victorian, you know, like a Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Like it's going to just always seem like a piece of pastiche if you do, but maybe what you do notice is the way that he constructs his stories. Um, you know, the, the, the Sherlock Holmes story, the classic Sherlock Holmes story is a really complicated structure where, where what happened and what we're, what we're led to believe happened and what actually happened and how we're told about what happened and how we are then taken on a story where they investigate to find out the truth about what really happened. You have like all these multiple layers of narrative in a Sherlock Holmes story. And the way that, that those layers are so, at his best, at Conan Doyle's best, are so expertly interleaved. Um, you know, you can learn a lot about structure from copying one of those stories. Did you ever go through and plot, like you go through and... I've done this with some books where you go through and make a um, outline of the book or, or, or plot like what each chapter is. Uh, I don't know if I've ever been that methodical, but I've definitely picked up many, many books to read the openings and see like what is where does he start, where does she start, what is the information that she thinks we most need to have about her characters or their world in the first sentence, yeah. in the first paragraph, in the first chapter, in the first five chapters how far are we into the story by halfway through like when we're halfway through the book are we actually halfway through the story or does it does this writer take much longer to sort of build up and and does the denouement and the resolution kind of occur in the last quarter of the book or how are things structured in that way i mean i've done that and i continue to do that many times or if i want to write if i'm writing something like in the case of um my book moon glow came out a few years back the time structure of that book is very jumbled and the narrative jumps back and forth among multiple time periods in the character's life um and so uh, you know i was taking a lot of close looks at one of my favorite books the english patient by michael andache because that one does that very thing and it's, it's it's a fragmented novel it does jump around but it but somehow it manages to stay cohesive and the narrative threads begin to really 
work together as they as the book is jumping back and forth across time. So it comes to a really powerful emotional place along multiple storylines, which that's what I was looking to do. Kind of compounding the impact. Of yes, and so I just like I'll just pick up English Patient and read it and reread it and then jump to the middle of it and look in the middle and what's happening in the middle of this book, what's happening at the end. How do I know I'm getting close to the end in this book? What does he choose to do in the last 20 pages? You know, why did he save it till that point? All those kind of things. Um, So sixth grade, when you wrote that Conan Doyle fan fiction, Mm -hmm. um, was there a moment? Was there an epiphany? Was there a moment at which you knew like, this will be my life? Or did you just always know? Um, Well, uh, uh, I mean, I loved to read, and I loved to read from a really early age. Um, and I was lucky that I grew up in a home where reading and books were really respected, and authors were respected, and that was a frequent dinner table conversation. It was my parents just talking about what they were reading. Typically, my dad would purchase the books, read them first, and then my mom would read them, and then when she had read them, then they would talk about them. And, and like I can remember still to this day like individual book conversations that were had sort of over my head, at the dinner table, I remember them talking about Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut. I remember them talking about um, uh, uh, this weird Philip Roth book called The Breast, um, about a man who turns into a giant breast. I mean, I wonder why I remember that. Uh, and, um, you know, other, I can remember, or I'll see a book in a, in a used bookstore and suddenly make, oh, I remember when my parents were reading that book. Um, when I wrote that Sherlock Holmes story, I loved writing it. I got so much pleasure from writing it. And, and, and it was a pleasure that was tied up for me in the pleasure of reading. You know, I was, I was essentially like anyone who's writing fan fiction. I was trying to make more of what I loved as a reader. Because you'd run out of the yeah, original source exactly. material. Yeah. And just so you're trying to extend your readerly pleasure through writing. So from the very beginning for me, writing was about pleasure. And it was about reader, readerly pleasure. Um, and then I uh, got an A from my teacher, you know, and my parents <laughs> praised me and said, like, this is really good. You did a really good job. And I thought, okay, I, I love doing it. I enjoyed it. I got to play with materials that are fun for me to play with. I got an A and I got praise from my teacher. So that's it. This is what I'm going to be. And that's from that point, I just always said I would be a writer. Um, so we touched on the idea of... Um, that writers are told they have to have an original voice from the very beginning. And what uh, just a um, defeating feeling that is mm-hmm. just um, looking at yourself and as a young writer mm-hmm. uh, and recognizing like, I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, I mean, even this far along, do you, and I'm, I assume at some point you must have, and maybe you still do. Do you have um, negative voices in your head that you have to, battle against i mean how how have you dealt with those sort of internally created obstacles um it's i mean for me it's less about negative voices in my head than it is about um just getting the day's work done on a daily basis just that like that struggle Every day, it's just as bad as the day before. It's never gotten any easier. I'm just like, I have to do my work. Even though I have, my whole life is like, and it's most of the time anyway, is structured to enable me to do my work. And I, I, you know, I have a fairly stable life and 
Um, you know, I, I have my schedule where I start work around 10 or 10.30 at night and I work till about 3 o'clock in the morning. And that's a given and it's the assumption and that's what I do and that's how I do it. And still every day there's a part of me that's like, oh God, I have to do my work and and I would, you know, I'm a little tired tonight. Maybe I should take the night off and, and then, no, oh, okay, I'll do my fucking work. And I go and sit and, you know, do the work. And then as soon as I'm get soon, the minute I'm, I begin, even if I don't really know what I'm doing. And I've, even if, like last night where I'm, I'm not totally sure where I'm going and, and I tried something and it didn't really work. And so then I deleted it and tried something else. And maybe that works a little better. I'll have to go back and look at it tonight. But, but. Uh, even when it doesn't, even under those circumstances, there's no effort involved anymore. It's like I'm in the chair. I know what I'm. I know how to type the tap the keys on the keyboard and make words appear and and to to judge whether they're the right words or not to assess whether they're the right words or not. I just start doing that all without thinking. And then of course, once I get the work done, I feel really good. Yes, I got my one thousand words. Good job. Actually, it's only been two hours. Maybe I should keep going, try to get 1200 words or 1400 words, see, you know, or maybe even close to 17, 1800 words. Um, and then that just feels even better. And you'd think like, yeah, that's great. I'm going to roll right into tomorrow. And then the next day it just starts all over again. Like, oh, I have to do my work and I'm a little bit tired and maybe I'll take a break tonight. And like, oh, look, I yell at a sick. She probably needs someone to take care of her. And like, I'll stay in, if I, I'll stay in bed. I'll work next to her in bed you know, tonight for a change or something like that. So, um, you know, to me, it's a bat. It's just that daily battle to get the work done. It's less about is it good or not. Well, that's its own category of obstacles in a way, right? The the, the lures of distraction and oh, then yeah. also the the things that we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves. Because you told me something once that I, we talked about it a minute ago. Um, sometimes you write on an iPad. Mm-hmm. And like to me... I. It's the kind of thing, it's totally the kind of thing I would think, well, I would write, but I don't have my laptop here and I can't not, I can't mm-hmm. write on something other than yeah. my laptop. Uh-huh. But that's just one of those stories you tell yourself, right? Yeah, right. Like, you don't I mean, write on an iPad. No, of course. Yes. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I've known a lot of writers over the years and I've known writers who get extremely fetishistic about the chair and the, the <laughs> pencils, right? And the pads and, yeah. uh, or whatever it is, or the font that they use uh, on their, if they're using word processing program. And, and, and I've done certain amount of that kind of stuff myself. I, I know it very well. And it is all just enabling, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's all really is an excuse because yes, you actually can write anywhere. I really do believe that it's yes, I have favorable circumstances. I prefer to write, you know, in my chair, uh, sitting in my chair, or I do actually do a fair amount of work in bed, like next to at night in bed. Um, but, um, you know, I work on airplanes and the thing is the, the, to me, the thing that gives the lie to the excuses that I make, um, is when I have a deadline. Right, because when I have a like a real deadline, and there's no deadline quite so real as like a movie work deadline, <laughs> where like you don't get paid till you turn it in, and they and they and you feel this whole engine is sort of idling, waiting for you, and and you you get I get way more pressure from that world than I ever get with, with book writing, where your editors just tend typically in my my history, I've never had an editor give me any pressure to hurry up uh, ever, but with movies 
or some magazine writing and stuff that I've done. It's different. They have real deadlines. Magazines may be most of all. And under those circumstances, I can write anywhere. Like I, it, when I have to, then all those conveniences and excuses and, and rituals and habits and all that stuff just drops away. It's like, you've got to get this thing done. Sit down and do it. It doesn't matter if you're... you're I've, I've written in you know doctor's offices. I've written... As long as I can screen out what's around me. And that's the one thing. Yeah. I can't work if there's people talking around me. I can't work if there's a lot of noise around me. I know there are writers who could. Edith Wharton used to sit in the corner of her drawing room with her whole family life going on all around her and the kids running in and out and the men coming in and out and she would just get her work done but so I do as long as I have headphones yeah. and some good like ambient music no um, lyrics no lyrics can't, can't, uh, some foreign languages if I don't uh, yeah. know the foreign language if it doesn't mean <laughs> anything to me yeah um, but not normally um, and uh, like weirdly certain like I can I can work to yes even though it has lyrics, the, maybe the lyrics are so meaningless. Yeah. They don't just, they don't catch in my, that part of my brain that's busy trying to come up with words. They just sort of seem to slide right over it. Um, but usually wordless, instrumental. And also it's really important that I have pretty steady dynamics. It can't get really soft. And then suddenly they get really loud. Like a lot of like romantic classical music doesn't work at all. Yeah. Because the dynamics are so. That's interesting. Big. I might hit you up for a playlist if you've got. I, I, I will. I'd be You're happy good at to a playlist. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've been listening to a lot of, um, uh, like drone, drone ambient music recently. Like there are these these this couple called Windy and Carl out of the Midwest that have put out a lot of fantastic records of uh, drone ambient music, and and it's even the, and she sings a little bit, and it doesn't seem to. It's very soft. She sings very softly, and the words don't seem to intrude into my. That sounds excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally, when you, I, I really love. First of all, I love how generous you are with people like me that ask you questions, mm-hmm. even when I'm not interviewing you <laughs> form, formally. Mm-hmm. I really feel like you you always give super thoughtful, useful answers to the questions about. What does one do? How does one do this? And and you and I have written songs together. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, we talked about collaboration. Have you ever written in person? Like when you wrote with Mark Ronson, was any of that stuff? Yeah, person? a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a lot of it, you wind up sending lyrics. And, yeah, exchanging lyrics. Yeah, yeah, the logistics of writing in person. Yeah. Um, if you were to meet a version of yourself, a twenty-year-old working in today's mm-hmm. world, um, what advice would you give yourself? Now about, about now, how about, about are now. now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, it's the same. I mean, I guess my, you know, I talked about how writing started with reading for me. Like to me, reading is essential, and 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 I know it's harder than ever to read. Um, there are so many other things you could be doing, but there's no point in writing or wanting to write or be a writer if you have no interest yourself in reading or you can't make time for it. If yeah. you can't make time for other writers writing to read the writing of other writers, living or dead, what chutzpah to expect other people to make that kind of time for your writing? Um, not only that, you won't ever learn anything. Like, everything I know about writing, I learned from reading. Everything. Like, yes, I had good teachers. 
they gave me some good little tips over the years I was in writing school about like think quick rookie mistakes to avoid or but mostly what they told me to, what they did for me those great teachers my best teachers got me reading writers that they learned from um, or that they thought I could learn from because they saw something in my writing that reminded them of the work of another writer um, uh, or they would teach me those tips about things to avoid by pointing to the work of a writer who's very good at avoiding that that rookie mistake or those pitfalls or like you're learning how to write dialogue so you know um like when i was a student it was pretty common to point to ernest hemingway at his best and look at how he handles dialogue and how he uses fragments and how he doesn't always attribute the dialogue and that a lot and he avoids adverbs completely and you know and if the dialogue itself doesn't tell you the how it's being said then you haven't written the dialogue dialogue correctly nowadays i might point to the writer i think writes the best dialogue of anyone writing is richard price and just so if i were your teacher you know i wouldn't what i would say is you want to learn how to write good dialogue go read richard price it's all about reading ultimately so that's still just as true as ever. And it, and I do run into a lot of young writers who come to me and ask me for like tips. And when I tell them read, I can see the disappointment in their face of like, oh, not that, not that stupid thing about reading again. Or like everybody says that. Or yeah, I know that. Um, I've heard that before, but it's, 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 you've heard it before and everyone says it because it's, it's the only really true piece of advice anyone can ever give you except now I have a new one which is put your phone away and this is advice for me not just for these young people with their phones it's for everyone you know they've done studies now I just was reading about it where they where uh, it wasn't of writers it was just of people trying to get work done generally that simply by having your phone near you even if it never rings and you, or beeps or anything and you never touch it just being near you, within arm's reach, reduces the effectiveness and efficiency of the work that you do and your ability to concentrate and focus on your work. Just its proximity and nothing else. Not to say nothing of the actual intrusions that it makes or that the way that it can be a distraction for you. Um, but more than that, to me, it's about what you're doing when you're not writing. What you're doing when you're just out walking around, when you're out in the world, when you're when you're meeting people, when you're going places, I don't mean exotic, interesting places. I mean just going to the dentist or going to class or going to wherever your job or whatever it is. We used to have no choice in the matter. You had to pay attention to the world. You, you could ignore the world around <laughs> you in some way, maybe by like staring at your feet or and then eventually putting headphones on. Came, that came along. Um, but essentially you were confronted with the physical reality of the world and people around you all the time in every situation, waiting online at the DMV or standing in line at the grocery store or just walking through the aisles of the grocery store. And now with your phone, it's this beautiful solution to that problem, the tedium of everyday life. It gives you something cool, interesting, informative, entertaining, diverting to to be doing when you're doing when you're not seemingly not doing anything. However, it's from the everyday experience 
of the world around you and the people in it and the things they say and the way they talk and the way they dress and the way they look and how they smell and all those things and, and the way the world looks and sounds and smells and all the details that you can pick up in the course of a 20-minute walk from here to anywhere. Um, that is what you make your your fictional worlds out of and you create your characters out of that information. You, It's all experience and yes, you can get certain kinds of experience through the screen of a phone, but um, no no sensory experience whatsoever, um, other than visual and auditory, and that's not enough to create a world. And um, you know, it's just you sit down in a restaurant booth, and you're alone, and there's four people in the booth right behind you. You can you can get an entire short story from their conversation. You could get up and leave an hour later from the, your booth and have the material for a whole short story just from hearing what these people, who they were, maybe take a occasional look over your shoulder to get the visuals on it and figure out like, who are these people? And Oh, this is a married couple and one of their parents. And, but who's that other guy? And I, what's their relationship to each other? And then you start to piece it together. You figure it out. And then you realize the thing they're talking about is actually kind of weird and interesting. And, and you walk out of there and you're like, I have a short story now. If you sat down in that same restaurant booth and you had headphones on, or even if you didn't and you're just looking at your phone and you're reading really important articles about <laughs> what's going on in Russia and blah, blah, blah. But still, your fo- if your attention is going into that screen and it's not on those people, then you lost the whole short story. And you didn't get one from your phone screen. You don't walk out of there having been on, um, you know, uh, looked at the um, 10 weird things about Play-Doh on BuzzFeed or something like that (laughs) with an idea for a really beautiful short story. So, I mean, that's my new advice I give is, is put the phone away. Don't rely on it to help you through the boring parts because the boring parts are where you get material for your fiction from at 10 30 when you come out here do you bring your phone no i plug my phone in the kitchen and that's really enough i sometimes if i'm being very distracted or if there's something going on in the world that or it's really tempting to, yeah. to to check i will also i use an app called freedom um that turns off the internet on your computer completely turns off every avenue you have to the internet um and more importantly than turning it off, you can't turn it back on again without actually shutting your computer down. Not just rebooting, but actually shutting it down and then booting it back up again. So, and that is, feels so shameful. Like, like to be like, like it, that is sufficient. Like, I'll be like, really? Do I, re-? like, if I turn freedom on and then I think, oh, I'm just going to check this or that. And then, you know, you have that moment like, really? Is it really worth sitting and rebooting the whole computer and waiting for all the apps to relaunch again and all that shit just so I can, you know, check this picayune trivial thing that seems mildly interesting or important right now. And almost always the answer is no, don't be an idiot. Yeah. And what what's really scary for me about the distraction, when if we're just talking about the distraction of the internet, whether through phones or through your laptop or whatever, I mean, first of all, it's so deadly and devious that the very the tool with which you do your art. Like imagine, I mean, you're a musician. Like imagine if your guitar was like selling you shit while you were trying to play it. Right. Or like, like feeding you fascinating gossip or whatever it is. Like, (laughs) like thank God it doesn't. 
right? Imagine if there's four guys up on stage trying to play a concert together, but their instruments are all like, you know, pinging and beeping and like giving them news updates and stuff like that. It's weird. And yet here's this thing that you're trying to make your art with. And it's also this vehicle for selling things and, and telling you things. That, that That's so crazy. But what I've noticed is like when I shut it off, when I have freedom turned on, I have no internet access, the impulse to like check your email has nothing to do with how productive. It's not, I don't feel like, it's It's not when I'm in my downtime. It's not when I'm in like, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'll just surf the internet. It's, I can be just flying along. Like the words are flowing. Everything's going great. And then I say like, I'll just check my email. Like what? Like why am I checking my email now <laughs> when my work's going great? And then like, it's such a, it's that's what scares me about it. Is it's so deeply involuntary and it's so uncorrelated mm-hmm. to the previous di- distractions that we had as writers before the internet. Yeah, you would get up and rearrange your books or put your pencils away, but you didn't do it when things were going well. Mm-hmm. When you were when your work was going well, um, there was nothing that would get you up out of your chair to go do something else. It was only when it wasn't going well that you engaged in these, these procrastinating kind of behaviors and stuff. But now the internet, it's, it's something you do when it is going well. It's really weird. Well, so there's the self generated obstacles. It's not some negative voice in your head. It's that, it's that pernicious little, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that weird need. It's that weird need. It's just, and it's just, God, I think that's super useful. Just knowing that there's an app called Freedom that, that I can—it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and it's really uh, 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 you'll—it's sobering. Now, did Jonathan Franzen invent the app? <laughs> <laughs> right, he named his book after it. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's just like when you when you just for two hours, you can set it for any period of time. So mm-hmm. you just set it for two hours, and then count how many times you feel like checking your email or going on Instagram or. Or whatever, like just count the number of times you have that impulse, and it's terrifying. Yeah, it's it's like dozens oh in that God. two hour period. Then you're like, oh right, I can't. Oh God, I just I'll keep working, and you'll get your work done. And it, and you and like I can get a thousand words in in two hours by turning the internet off. That's great. I'm gonna do it. I feel like there's so much in here that's super useful. I really think that not just writers, but everybody will get. A lot out of what you've told me today. Thank you so so much. It's been fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks for being my guest on Wheels Off, Michael. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hey, music fans, we wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. 
The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com, for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy. Enjoy.